We're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. If you'd like to use the Bible there in the seats, that should be page 960. Paul has been speaking to the church in Corinth, addressing most recently in the letter their understanding of how they should function together in worship. He's addressed the issue of the Lord's Supper and taking that properly. And last week, he started to address issues of tongues and prophecy and how those should function within worship. Uh, And now he begins to talk about the structure of worship as they employ the gifts that God has given them by the Spirit. Let's attend together to what God's Word has to say to His people with a Spirit bless the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40 What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For can all prophesy one by one? For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we come to consider these words from God's word, let me first of all say that if you have questions about the nature of tongues and prophecy and how they relate to our worship today, I spoke about that some last week, and so I won't be re-covering that material. Uh, So I invite you to go back to last week's sermon if you weren't here, or if you have follow-up questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, Likewise, As we unpack what's said today, there may be other questions you have about what this passage says. Uh, I will be away next week, but you can just sit on those questions. Go ahead and email them to me, and I'm always happy to talk to you. Uh, This is an opportunity for God's Word to be preached to God's people together, but it's not the end. We chew on it, we think about it, we digest it together and in conversation. Uh, So know that that invitation is always open to you. With that said, let me ask that the Lord would bless our time of consideration. Gracious God, we've heard your word read aloud. Now, as we come to investigate it, to study it, Lord, would you work in our hearts and minds, in our bodies and our wills, in our lives and in our work and in our families, as your spirit has its way with your people. Lord, when I proclaim your truth for your people, and will all that falls short quickly be forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. 
To help us think about this morning's passage, I want to take us back to a passage in the Old Testament to 1 Kings 18. You don't need to go there right now because I'm going to have to summarize. But King Ahab, as we talked about with the kids this morning, was ruling in Israel, the northern kingdom, and under his rule, the worship of false gods, particularly Baal, flourished. Now, Baal was the god of the storm, and because he controlled in their worship the rain, he was the god over fertility and productivity. And there was a drought in the land, and therefore there was a famine, and the people were struggling. But God revealed to Elijah, his prophet, that he was going to send rain. But in the promise to send rain was an opportunity for the Lord's power over all creation to be on display versus Baal. And so Elijah invites the prophets of Baal to the mountain that there might be, as it were, a showdown. And so they are to offer their sacrifices and ask that their sacrifices would be acceptable. And so the prophets of Baal started off. And they began singing and chanting and dancing. The passage tells us they begin cutting themselves. And this goes on not for seconds, not for minutes, but for hours. And so it comes to the point where the passage describes them as raving before Baal. And there is no response. Elijah goes over to where the um, altar has been set up and there's a sacrifice on it. And he has them dump heaps of water upon it, soaking it. And then he simply cries out to God in prayer to receive the sacrifice. And fire from heaven comes down and burns up not only the sacrifice, but the altar upon which it stood. In that confrontation, we see, first of all, the power of the living God as opposed to Baal. But we also see through the manner of worship, through the actions of the prophets of Baal versus the actions of Elijah, something about the character of God. That for these servants of Baal, they need to sing, they need to chant, they need to dance, they need to perform, they need to injure themselves in the hopes that their God would respond. Whereas the prophet to whom God has revealed himself merely cries out, and God responds in power. What does our worship say about God? How we worship says something about the God that we worship. The question is whether the worship we are enacting is speaking the truth about the God that we are gathered together to worship. When we worship, are we projecting our preferences, our tastes, our assumptions about worship, and therefore substituting the object of worship, making it about us, rather than the God that we're called to worship? Paul is addressing worship among the gathered church in Corinth, which is poorly representing the God they are gathering to worship. This is important because Paul is 
not laying out an order of worship here. Paul isn't saying, okay, uh, for the bulletin, for the church in 2023, this is what you should do. No, Paul is addressing, as he has throughout most of the letter, not giving a full how-to list, but saying, hey, the way that you're doing Lord's Supper, that's not okay, you need to correct this. The way you understand sexuality and marriage in the body, not okay. In the coming chapters, what you think about resurrection in the body and the spirit, uh uh-uh, sorry, let's come back to Christ. And here he's saying, you are doing some things in worship that need to be addressed. He's not laying out a complete order of worship how-to, but saying what you are doing is saying something about God that is not true and therefore is not good. At this point in the history of God's people, there isn't a set order of worship. The Jews are are building on their understanding of worship from the synagogue. The the Corinthians and and those coming out of a Gentile background are trying to to put to work what they know about worship through the specific lens of the gospel And over time, there begins to come a a set pattern of worship. But at at this time, they're just trying to say, how do we worship God? And what we see is that they have put together a chaotic and confusing worship service that does not reflect the character of God, who is a God of peace. It seems like the people are talking over one another, confusing one another with uninterpreted tongues, leading to chaos, confusion. We know that they like to boast in their gifts, and so it is likely that some of the ways that they are engaging these gifts are competitive. Oh, they had that prophecy. They had that tongue. They had that gift. Wait till they see mine. The issue is not the various gifts. It's not tongues versus prophecy. It's not hymns versus music. It's not healing versus apostleship. It's how they are employing them. Genesis 1, 1 through 1-2 gives us a sense of what's going on here. We read that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. And in Genesis 1, 1 through 1-2, we read that God created the world, the heavens, and the earth. And in the beginning, the earth was tohu vabohu, empty and void. It was without order. It was unfruitful until the Spirit hovered over the waters and God begins to make it organized. And from that organization, as he separates day and night, light and dark, the earth from the water, there begins to be the fruitfulness of plants and animals and seasons and humanity. God is not a God of confusion, The same Greek word here in this passage that the Greeks used to translate that passage from Genesis 1 or 2. Rather, he is a God of peace, of order, of a lack of chaos and competition. And from that, that experience of peace, as we read of the way that God uses that word in the Old Testament, peace isn't just a lack of warfare, it is the enjoyment of blessing and fruitfulness. God intends our worship to reflect his character. That through the peaceableness, through the orderliness, there is an enjoyment of the fruitfulness of who God is. Our worship of the God of peace who made this beautiful universe for his glory should reflect God, not in chaos and confusion, but in building up. Worship which builds up in reflection of the God of peace is orderly, it's self-controlled and deferential, as we'll see. First of all, such worship is orderly. In the midst of confusion, Paul exhorts the church to worship in an orderly fashion. He does so in two ways. First of all, at the end of the passage, he says it explicitly. 
do all things decently and in order. He's explicit, but he starts off describing it. He says, if you have the gift of of tongues that are interpreted, or you have a prophecy to share, we need to do so in an orderly fashion. Just a few of you need to share, and then there needs to be an interpretation. Or just a few of you need to share the prophecy so that then the prophecy can be weighed. The purpose is not limitation. He's not saying only one or two or three can share, but only one or two or three can share at a time so that people can hear, so that people can comprehend, so that they can benefit. It's not limitation, it's order. In in fact, his hope is, according to verse 31, so that all that are gifted may be able to speak in order that all may learn, and from that learning, that they would all be encouraged. The purpose for the order isn't control. It's not for the sake of formality. It is in order to serve the interest of building up the body. From that order comes the opportunity for God's people to be built up by what is said, to be built up by the gifts that are shared. Just as uninterpreted tongues were discouraged in the first half of chapter 14 because people didn't understand them, So the disorderly presentation of the gifts is discouraged because the people can't benefit. As the prophetic utterances could be mistaken, not the Lord, but those who were interpreting them, they needed to have time and opportunity, as verse 29 says, to weigh them and consider them. Therefore, worship is to be done decently and in good order. Decently meaning appropriately to what they are gathered to do, which is to worship God, and in an orderly fashion. This reflects the character of God. As we read in Genesis 1 and 2, God orders the world. We live in a world in which we expect the sun to rise in the east and set in the west. We follow the phases of the moon to establish our celebrations of various festivals that God instructs his people because this universe of order This universe of predictable laws of physics comes from a God who brings order. Light from dark, day from night, animals according to their own kind. The description of creation reveals that the world works, that ecosystems function, that our bodies repair themselves according to the design of an orderly God who is intentional and from that intention brings fruitfulness and blessing. A place for everything and everything in its place according to God's design and reflected in worship. If you go into a a commercial kitchen preparing meals for lots of people, it may seem like chaos and confusion. Multiple stations, you have the grilling station, you have the sauce station, you might have a place where they're frying food, a soup station. And yet, in the midst of all of that chaos, in the midst of all of those different entrees and appetizers and desserts that they're trying to share with all of these various ingredients, that kitchen can function because of a French phrase, mise en place. If you speak French, forgive my pronunciation. But it just means things put in order. 
that because they chop up all the vegetables and they know, okay, this sauce is right here and it goes in at this time and everything was within reach, then what appears like chaos with all of these ingredients, with all of these goals of various meals, a kitchen can then serve tens if not twenties if not hundreds of people all these various foods because everything is ordered and in its place. The order of worship, the functioning of worship should be no less ordered. Because we are doing something no less wonderful than bringing together our diverse experiences, backgrounds, and gifts together for the purpose of glorifying God. The, the order of worship at Christ Church and churches like ours is intentional. It's not merely my intention or my desires or preferences, but we are drawing on history hundreds, if not thousands of years old, back not only to the Reformation, but through the Reformation as the church continued to worship God, saying, how do we worship according to the good news of the gospel? And they said, the worship should present the gospel. It should present the story of God's covenant renewal. God calls us to himself. He is the initiator. And we come to worship him. And yet we come with a problem with sin. But when we acknowledge that sin before God, he assures us of pardon and forgiveness. And as his people who worship him, we are instructed by his word. And that word feeds us. And that word leads us to the good news that we are sustained by Christ who's body and blood was shed for us. And so as those who are called, who are forgiven, who are assured, who are instructed, we are sent out with His blessing. We order our worship to reflect the truth so that all might understand, that all might participate, that responsive readings give an opportunity for us to share in this beautiful story of what God has done and is doing among His people. Now, there might be temptation for us to be too orderly. And the purpose of doing things decently and in order is not for order, for order's sake. And so one thing we should pray about, one thing I invite you to give us feedback is, if our worship ever becomes formal for the sake of formality, if we, our worship is such that it restricts the participation of the gifts of God's people, then where are we called to repent? Because the purpose of order is not to restrict people, not to push them away from participation, but so that all might learn, all might be built up. Therefore, God's worship, worship which reflects him, is supposed to be orderly. And in order for that order to function, the worshipers must also be self-controlled. The orderly manifestation of the spiritual gifts means that a spirit-led expression is to be offered in self-control. Self-control will be necessary for the tongue speakers or the prophets to offer their contributions in an orderly fashion. Now that might not seem obvious on the surface. It might not seem obvious to the Corinthians. It might not seem obvious to some of us who have had experiences with more charismatic expressions of the church today. It seems that the expectation is, well, the Spirit is powerful. The Spirit is amazing. The Spirit has something to say upon the church. My job is just to let go and let God. To just give free reign to the expression of what God is saying, God is doing by His Spirit at the moment. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says, you are not given over to a spirit of ecstatic expression, but rather as you come to worship the God who made all things orderly to experience the peace of knowing him, you offer it in self-control. 
we are, see that we can have an orderly worship. Because of what it says in verse 31 and 32. Look with me to those verses. In 31, it says this. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Now, sometimes in English, we confuse can and may, right? Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And the teacher, if they're of a certain sort, says, I don't know. Can you go to the bathroom? This isn't a, hey, you can, you may be able to do this. He, the word there in the Greek is the word from which we get power and ability. He's saying you have been empowered to do this one by one. Whereas you might be confused to think you have been empowered to throw off order. You have been empowered to speak whenever it suits you at the moment. Rather, the spirit of power that is upon you is the same spirit that gives you the ability to wait your turn. It's the same spirit who brings fruitfulness in the lives of his people that Paul describes in the letter to the Galatians that are the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Verse 32 continues the point. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. As the Spirit reveals what God has for His people, as the Spirit of God is speaking to the spirits of the prophets, the prophets are yet still enabled by that same Spirit to decide when and how to share God's Word with His people in the way that God says. The Spirit of the prophet is still subject to the prophet. We consider the Old Testament prophets who had more profound revelations in many ways, who had these miraculous experiences, things to say not just to individuals gathered around the dining room table in Corinth, but to kingdoms and to nations. And yet they were often called to receive that revelation and then go down the road and set up a time with the king to then reveal what the Spirit had revealed to them through the prophecy. Those with pagan backgrounds may think that the moving of the Spirit means ecstatic giving over to the leading of the Spirit no matter the time, place, or manner. But that imposes pagan worship beliefs. That imposes our modern-day understanding that we are only our most authentic self when we are following wherever our heart leads us. But the Spirit does not come to create chaos but peace. Think of a beautiful dance. Whether you admire jazz or hip-hop or tap dance or ballet, where does the beauty of that expression come from? Yes, they are following the music. Yes, they may be flowing with the music, but their ability to express such beauty in response to that music comes through the dedication and sacrifice of self-control, where through stretching and choreography and coming in tune with their bodies, they have the control over their bodies to produce that beauty. I can be as absolutely free with the music as I want to be, and I can guarantee it's not going to be beautiful but those who are not free but discipline themselves may exude this beauty that comes from that self-control. 
God does not send his spirit to take control of his people, but restores by his grace and power the freedom to live under control to him. For in the worship of God, we are meant to reflect God. Self-control is, as I said, a fruit of the Spirit. Tongues and prophecy can be put on the hold for the right moment because we are worshiping a God of self-control. We don't worship a God who is always changing his mind. We don't worship a God who is distracted by new things. We don't worship a God who is capricious or moody, who could be sleeping like Baal as his prophets cut themselves. Numbers 23.1 reminds us God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? He is not led to distraction by flights of fancy. He's not carried away by his emotions. God is not at the mercy of his passions. He does only his holy and perfect will. It empowers us to do his perfect and holy will as his spirit works among us. So we worship under control to reflect the God who rules all perfectly. And this means that we need to consider some of the practices within the American church. About 150 years ago, people were excited about revival and they said, we want more revival. So you know what we'll do? We'll play songs that are really emotional. We'll get really charismatic leaders to build up the body and then we will produce a response so that they respond to the gospel, that there will be professions of faith. We are going to make believers out of this nation. And you know what? On the surface, they did. There were many professions of faith. And then those same people made that same profession of faith the next week and the next week and the next week. We don't gather, brothers and sisters, to manipulate or be manipulated. We gather to hear the word of God and to give of ourselves in control, trusting the greater purposes of God. And because our worship is about serving God rather than serving our expression, our worship is deferential. Now, that's not a word we use every day, but I chose it for the outline because it has a range of meaning that I think applies to this passage. On one hand, deference can mean the right respect that we owe to someone in authority who has a position of honor, like a salute from a subordinate to their commanding officer. But it can also mean the gracious offering of respect. We defer to someone in order to confer honor or respect that they don't already have upon them. And we see both senses in this passage. First, the deference of obedient respect. It shows up a few ways in the passage. The Corinthians are quick to assert their positions. They're quick to assert their giftedness. But but God, through Paul, calls them not to self-promotion, but to submission. He calls them to submission to the greater church. Before he speaks with regard to the women in the church and And with that line, I think he's speaking not only to that issue, but to all of these issues in total. He's saying, this is not just one practice. This is as it is in all of the churches. He's saying, consider not your own desires, but show deference to your brothers and sisters and to the authority and weight of what God's church around the nations is doing. And as an apostle, he speaks under the authority of God. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Was it from them that the word of God came or was it through Paul 
to them? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things they am writing to you as a command of the Lord. The spiritual are not those who are self-lifting, but those who are quick to honor God. Corinthian worship was meant to be obedient to God and submissive to the church as a whole. Worship is not a place for them to do whatever they want, how they want. We consider that our worship should be under the regulation of God's word, that we do that in worship which God has commanded us to do, and we don't do in worship what God hasn't commanded us to do, and therefore show deference to the God we worship. It's also expressed in perhaps more difficult manner in the words recorded for us in verses 34 through 35 with regard to women. First, let me say, this is not a blanket statement. We can rip these verses out of the context and misapply them, and they have been misapplied. And to do that would be to assume that Paul can't remember what he wrote a few chapters earlier when he was talking about women prophesying and praying in the congregation. Paul is not saying women should never speak. But Paul is speaking in the context of what they're talking about, where the prophecies are being made, and then they're being weighed. And the weighing is to test those prophecies. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he encourages the church to test the spirit of prophecy, to say, not only is what they're saying true, is it according to Christ and according to the rest of God's word, but is their application of what they should do consistent with the gospel? And it's the responsibility of the elders of the church to say, what should the church do in response to what God has said? And so in this context, where the person might be think, well, I have a question for the prophet, or, or I need to speak up to consider what we should do from this, the women, in accordance to submission to the men who are called to lead the church, are supposed to wait and, and ask specific questions about specific applications that they would apply it with their husbands, or the word there is really their men, whether their husbands or their fathers or those in their household. To speak was about questioning and testing and judgment. And they are here told, you're not less than, therefore you can't speak, but you need to submit to the authority into the church who's called to lead the church in response to his word. So there's deference by respect to the rightful authority. But there's also deference in giving up the respect that we are due in order to bless others. There's something interesting in verse 30 that you might have passed over. There's this encouragement to speak in an orderly fashion to one prophet, then another prophet, then another prophecy. But then it says this in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Someone is sharing a prophetic word. And we're not quite sure how this would have been signaled or what exactly was happening. But someone who is there in the congregation has a sudden revelation that might apply to what is being said. The person who is speaking is to defer to the person there. The the word there first can either mean first in prominence or, or first in order. So we, whether it's the first person who's speaking because they're more important in the congregation, which is less likely, or that they were speaking first, they are to defer to what this other person has been given from God. Now, usually this is not the way that we show deference and respect. We say, well, who was in line first? I was here first. He was speaking first. Let's let them finish. But though this person has the positional authority, 
though they were speaking first, they defer to what God is doing in this other person, stepping aside that the congregation would be blessed by this new revelation. The whole order and organization of worship described here is about giving up what we might want to do, what we might feel we are owed the right to do for the good of the body. The purpose is so that the gifts can not only be given, but so that they're given for the benefit of the people that can hear them. So that the gifts, whether prophecy, tongues, or hymns, can be actually received by the church. So that they can be built up. The gift is meant to be given in a way that it can be received. This is the character of our God, too. Philippians 2. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Step aside. The first is silent so that the new one can step up. Let each one of you look not to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have the mind among you, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the character of God who though he is due all worship, all glory, all praise, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, set aside that which he was owed to give us a share in what was his. To come as a servant, to be spat upon, to be beaten, and to be crucified. The first becoming last, the king coming as a servant so that we could share in the blessing that was due Him. That though God does not give His glory in terms of His essence to us, by making us the bride of Christ, we are glorified in participating in the work that God has called us to do. God graciously deferred His rights so that He could gather us to Himself, placing Christ as head over the church that we might become the body which fills all in all. We get a lot out of worship, and rightly so. God instructs us. God proclaims forgiveness. He assures us. He feeds us. But that which we receive, we get when we give. That coming in reverent delight to who he is, that submitting to the authority of his word, giving ourselves to the work of worship, offering our gifts for the ministry of the church, listening to what our brothers and sisters have to say, listening to their testimonies. It is only through the giving of ourselves that the, through the submission and deference and the gracious disposition that we are in the place to receive. It is only as we offer the deferential worship which reflects the rule of God and the grace of Christ that we are built up. Brothers and sisters, our worship is a window. The thing about windows is they are meant to be seen through. I walk down the street and I can know a lot about my neighbors who, despite being very private New Englanders, say something about themselves through their windows. I know which neighbors have giant TV screens on their walls. I know which neighbors have beautiful pieces of art. I see which neighbors have rooms full of plants and others that are full of kids' toys and chaos. 
that apart from covering up those windows, they say something about themselves, whether they intend to or not. Those windows give a picture into their lives. And brothers and sisters, our worship is necessarily a window into who we believe God is. What is seen in our worship? Who is seen in our worship? Will it be the God of self-expression? The God of chaos, confusion, of competition, of selfishness? Or will it be the God who made the world? Who in power rules perfectly? And who has graciously given that we might share in what is His? The God of peace. Who when our sin and selfishness led us away from peace to chaos, confusion, and death, sent His Son that we might have peace blessing, and life in Him. Would our worship reflect the God that we worship? Let's pray. Lord, our worship is imperfect. Our worship is often conflicted. But we pray that by Your Spirit's work, as we listen to Your Word, your worship, our worship would be acceptable in Your sight because of the perfect work of Christ. And that we would be conformed more and more after the image of Christ to show Your glory, wonder, and power in how we worship. In Christ's name, amen.